did I not see this coming? Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and tonight I'm bringing on two good friends, and I hope we won't be too silly because we have been laughing at ridiculous Mormon studies jokes before we hit record, which is a shame because that's where the, the real tea is spilled. But I want to welcome back Christina Rossetti, who has been on the podcast before. Christina, can you say hello? Hello. And here for the first time ever is my good friend, Sarah Vrain. Sarah, can you say hello? Hi. All right, Christina, since you've been on the program before, on the program, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of California, Riverside, and I'm currently finishing up a dissertation on Mormonism and varying kinds of authority. And one of my favorite things about Christina is I have gotten her addicted to Diet Coke soda drinks here. It's so true. And both her and I enable each other with our bad behavior. So you're welcome, world. She is a Catholic who uh, has now entered our Mormon ways, and um, we hope to baptize her very soon. Okay, and Sarah, why don't you tell us who you are and how we roped you into this? I am a midwife practicing in the Salt Lake area. I am a home birth midwife. That's my specialty. And I'm also a lactation specialist. So I spend my days helping women that are pregnant and in the postpartum period of their lives. And I am roped into this because... I am a midwife and I was at your home and you said, Hey, we're doing this podcast. <laughs> I, well, so it predates that we were, we did a historical cemetery tour with some other Mormon okay. scholars. And I think that that's what got you into trouble in the first place. So this is, it should be a lesson to you that you should never hang out with Mormon studies people, especially at the cemetery. Okay. So we're going to, um, that start feels like legitimate life advice. <laughs> I think it's pretty solid advice. But uh, we'll probably be doing it again, let's be honest. That's not the first or the last time we're going to find ourselves at a cemetery together. True. These jokes are terrible. Okay, so Sarah um, is someone who I've known in Mormon feminism for a long time. I would consider her a scholar. I don't know if she considers herself that, but in her practice, she is doing the work of women and carrying on a long tradition of Mormon women. And I think that that's really important to voice in this podcast, because today we're going to talk about the history and development of women's sexuality and reproduction in Mormonism, which is kind of a broad topic. And that's why we're all going to cover different aspects. I'm going to sort of talk about women's sexuality as it's perceived by men. Christina is going to talk about sexual practices, and Sarah is going to talk about reproduction. So it's a broad topic and we're not going to cover it all. And obviously there is a lot to cover here and we're going to link you to some articles and and to some books after if you want to go into more detail. But shall we start at the beginning of Mormonism, ladies? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's set up the stage of what, when, when in the 1830s, how would people that would join the church, how is the whole American landscape contextualizing women and their bodies. One of the things that we know about women are women in this time period are there isn't a lot of there isn't a medical system like we have now, right? You don't have hospitals everywhere where you can go get help. They're on the edge of the frontier. People really have to either do it yourself, rely on a history of 
um, spoken word on how to to deal with this, or you just go with, you know, the latest emerging science, which is really not science at all. I mean, at this time, pamphlets are being published. We do know that Joseph Smith is influenced by a lot of the pamphlets that are coming around. We talked about this in the Word of Wisdom podcast. The The temperance movement was taking root, and it was being touted as the latest science for health and medicine. And Joseph Smith was interested in that. We also know that his mother was very interested in herbs and medicine. And this is how 19th century Americans and Mormons would have understood the world. So one of the things that becomes really important is that it wasn't until the 1820s and then really in 1873 with the Comstock laws that things like abortion and birth control become really heavily regulated and abortion becomes illegal. So up until that time, women's bodies were fairly autonomous, not completely autonomous, but in terms of medical practices and practices surrounding reproduction, women had a lot of autonomy and that world was very much regulated by women. In fact, abortion wasn't even really considered any kind of, quote, murder or infanticide, you know, heavy quotes on that language. But it wasn't considered a child until quickening when you could feel the baby. And so anything, any kind of practice done up until that time wasn't considered a problem or a moral issue. It was just considered women caring for their health and inducing menstruation. So up to that point, throughout most of the early 19th century, women had a lot of autonomy over their body and a lot of say in how their body was working in terms of their reproduction, their sexuality, and their medical care. Well, it's important in adding to that is that when you talk about that quickening, that was only determined by the woman herself. She had to make the call if she felt something or not. And so it really did lie in her hands if she was pregnant to the extent in which she could not have the pregnancy aborted or not. And I do I do like how that does put a lot of control into the woman's hands, even more so than we have now in our current climate. I would I would say something else that I hope that we're careful of. You know, I was reading some history on just Victorian sexuality in general, and there are two historians, Michael Mason and Peter Gay, who point out that sometimes we the modern view of this is we conflate Victorian etiquette for lack of knowledge. And women had some really good knowledge that they had passed down for generations out of mere survival. And just because this sort of culture of etiquette emerges does not mean that they were completely stupid and didn't know how to handle things. Yeah. And especially when, you know, when I was early on researching early Mormon ideas, like sexual practices, a lot of the ideas that come up in 19th century Mormonism were unique to religious spheres. They weren't ideas that permeated general secular society, you know, secular in quotes. And they weren't ideas that were within the new, you know, the New England Journal of Medicine was already being published. And a lot of the ideas about sexuality that religions adopted at the time weren't part of Victorian culture. Yeah, agreed. And another fascinating thing that that I don't think we're going to talk very much about, but a lot of medical knowledge came from prostitution. A lot of prostitutes and, you know, even the understanding of contagious diseases came out of this industry of people understanding this because because etiquette depended on using flowery language and euphemisms and things like that. Whereas if you were in sex work, you didn't have you didn't have to put on those airs, right? So that's that's another part that I don't think we're going to be able to talk about today very much. 
and that's really important even you know leading up to today you know as late as 1946 the US health department was going down to countries like Guatemala and giving syphilis to sex workers to test for cures so sex worker sex work and sex workers have always been a locus for trying to figure out medicine that's just something that we've always done women's so, body so sarah why don't you lead us into how um in the early 1800s how were women practicing how were they contextualizing reproduction did they I mean, I think sometimes we treat Victorians as if they didn't know anything, as if they didn't know the process or what was happening. But this isn't actually that long ago when we think about it. And I think women probably had more knowledge than we give them credit for. Yeah, there was there was typically a a skilled and knowledgeable woman in each community area. Sometimes there were one or two midwives. And these midwives, yes, they were predominantly the one that was called to when there was a birth happening, but they dealt with so much more than that as well. And they would care for the sick, the ailing, the, the old, old members of the community that were dying. Um, they really were one stop shop for their local communities. And it was a term, a term that was coined by Laurel Thatcher Ulrich um, is called social medicine. And she does point out that the midwife had a distinctive role as being the most visible and experienced person in that community. And she would be called to, you know, to a, a maybe perhaps a woman she did not know well, but that woman had four or five women surrounding her that knew her that had been caring for her. But the midwife would come in and then was the, the medical authority for that woman for that birth or that death that would be pending. That's fascinating. And so the term that she used was called social medicine? Mm-hmm. Social medicine. Yeah. There's a really good article about male sexuality, which we're not really focusing on, but I think that it's important because I think that this actually applies to Mormonism. It says in this article, which I'll link to, it says, in order to curb men's habitual urges and in response to Malthusian predictions that population increase would inevitably outstrip food resources, early Victorian social moralists proposed and to some extent imposed a socio-medical discourse based on masculine self-control in support of the ideal of domestic life, a patriarchal culture which prizes eternal self-vigilance as the key to manliness, moral worth, and material success, then projected its sexual anxieties onto its subordinates, women, children, and the lower classes in other nations. In line with this physiological idea that the body is a closed system of energy, male sexual expenditure, and especially excess, were said to be the cause of enfeeblement. Thus, it was seriously held, for example, that sexual appetite was incompatible with mental distinction and that procreation impaired artistic genius. Men were vigorously counseled to conserve vital health by avoiding fornication, masturbation, and nocturnal emissions, for which a variety of devices were invented. And by rationing sex within marriage, even when other causes were present, sickness and debility were frequently ascribed to masturbation, the great erotic subject described as vigorously as it was denounced. And they believed that that sexual urges in excess cause insanity. That's one thing that that a lot of um, early moralists would have understood. Do we see that show up at all in Mormonism? Yes, so much. Early Mormon, early 19th century church leaders had very strong ideas about sexuality within marriage. And we talk a lot about the law of chastity and what sexuality is supposed to look like, kind of making sure that it's happening within marriage. But we 
are really quick to forget that the early early church leaders were interested in how sexuality was done within marriage. And this is something that continues in fundamentalist communities as the law of purity, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. But as early as 1857, uh, George Q. Cannon was taught was being very specific about what that looks like and what that means and he kind of echo, he echoes ideas that Orson Pratt talked about in the seer in 1853 but in 1857 George Q Cannon really makes a bold statement about sexuality and he attributes it to Joseph Smith saying that quote attributed to Joseph Smith quote he taught that none but healthy men should marry, that a man should know his wife for the purpose of procreation and for that only, that he should keep himself apart from her during the caring and nursing periods, that it is lawful and right, God commanding for a man to have more than one wife, that adultery should be punishable by death, that whoredom should not be tolerated under any any consideration, and that by observing these roles and the general laws of health, their posterity would become healthy and vigorous. So it was really important, according to George Q. Cannon, who is attributing this to Joseph Smith, that sexuality had to be done correctly and only in certain times. And he's not quite making the leap to saying it's going to the parents, but most of the church leaders, both he and Orson Pratt, did make the connection that it would affect children at that time. And Joseph Stewart at the University of Utah and Paul Reeve have made claims, have used this quote to make claims to early ideas of eugenics in Mormonism. But people who practice the law of purity and fundamentalism look at this and say, this affects the way that sexuality is practiced affects children and future generations. Okay, that's that's interesting and something I think that we're going to talk about. This idea of the family as the ideal and producing, you know, righteous offspring is impacted by your own personal moral behavior before you even have the children, which is a very Victorian idea, like we talked about. This idea that if you have too much excess of sex, it makes your sperm weak and things like that. Sarah, how did how did this contrast with reproductive practices? I mean, it's unavoidable that women were having babies, but they're caught in this the middle of this idea of modesty and never talking about your reproduction to having to give birth as nature allows. So the question is, how how were women navigating this sort of you can't okay. talk about it, but it's necessary. Does that make sense? Women were really confiding in other women. They were confiding in their their sisters, their mothers, their mother-in-law, and their midwives or their community health workers. And luckily, they had women around them. And linking this to Mormonism, they had the Relief Society. And that was a huge support system for women at the time not only for their emotional and their spiritual health, but for their physical health, for actually surviving this part of their life. The midwives were attending women on their their birthbeds and their deathbeds. Oftentimes there was a lot of overlap between those two. And they, they had the Ruth study though, that really did offer that support for them. And, and, you know, and it's a lot different than how we think about the Relief Society today wasn't just an hour on Sunday. This was their life. This was their community. This is really what helped them get through having babies alive. And the numbers, the outlook wasn't great for women, but they were able to to have that support and to have a higher survival rate because they had connections. They had networking essentially in their Relief Society. I guess what that would mean is 
there's some sort of institutional support at the time, right? There's to talk about these things. Obviously, in a married situation, a woman giving birth wasn't seen as dirty or wrong. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So what would, can you... Motherhood was encouraged. So how, walk us through that practice. What would a typical birth look like? What would a typical birth look like in that time period? So typical birth, the women would have, um, the, the men were not allowed in the birth chamber as it was referred to. And women were there and midwives were, they were called. And in the Relief Society magazine in August, 1915, there is an article called the ancient and honorable order of midwifery. And it refers to the, the women that were attending the women in labor and that were not midwives and the ones that were midwives as the high priestesses of the birth chamber. And I, I love that. So, but these women, they would have women around them and then they would have the midwife that would come in and she was oftentimes very busy. So she would depend a lot upon the other, the friends and the sisters and the daughters to support the woman who was in labor. And then the midwife would, would come in and help with the actual delivery. Um, if a baby was being delivered in a, an unfavorable position, she would help navigate the safe delivery of the child. And the really at that time too, a lot of women would have complications with hemorrhaging. So losing a lot of blood after they had their baby. And especially if they were unable to expel the placenta, or as they called it, the afterbirth in that time. And that was a cause of a lot of a lot of complications, but the midwife was there. She was trained to extract that afterbirth. And what helped with this this training was that the church got on board and um, they started calling women to to go back east to be trained in the medical field, to be obstetricians, to be midwives, and that helped to decrease the death rate of both the mothers and the children. So this ended up being really important for Brigham Young because Brigham Young notoriously disliked doctors. And people had seen his quote from Journal of Discourses where he talks about how doctors and their medicines are a bane to the community. And so he was greatly concerned the medical practice, but midwives were different to him. And so one in the Journal of Discourses 15, he says, quote, it will be so in a little time that not a woman in all Israel will dare to have a baby unless she can have a doctor by her. So he's very concerned about women going to doctors because for a lot of people in this time, doctors were very much associated with sickness and death. And we see that narrative play out now with women who are interested in midwives and doing home birth because hospitals are associated with places you go when you're sick or dying. But this also played out interestingly in Mormon movements that weren't Brighamite. Uh, after Joseph Smith died, a lot of people decided that they were going to be the successor. And William Bickerton ended up being someone that was really interested in the idea of midwives instead of doctors. And Daniel Stone's new book on William Bickerton talks a little bit about this. And he talks about in on April 6, 1863, women, it was first suggested that the church would appoint women as deaconesses. And this was by Charles Cohen and Joseph Knox. They suggested it based on learning how Paul used the word deacon to talk about Phoebe. And it says, quote, deaconesses 
would also be allowed to deliver communion to shut-ins after the elders and had blessed it. And they could anoint a woman to be healed if an ordained man was not present. Spurred by this remarkable development, the saints decided to appoint midwives, not only to care for pregnant women, but also to look after and treat the sick and afflicted. The church voted to have nothing to do with doctors at all. So a lot of this is really heavily tied to early Mormon distrust and distaste for doctors. Yeah, and I, th- I think we're going to see the echoes of that still in modern Mormonism. And, and I, I like how you have tied it together with this distrust of outsiders in general. I do think that it was really amplified during the frontier period when Mormon men are worried about the threat of outsiders putting their hands on their wives, taking their wives away. So it's amplified by, we, you know, we don't trust outsiders to take care of our women. And so making it a church calling in that case makes a lot of sense. Well, and it takes the idea of ministering quite literally, right? I mean, they it's the church has always seen attending to as a church calling. So men in the way that men would have attended to other men, um, like in matters of property and things like that, they were given a calling of being the bishop, right? That's that is how they understood the economics of heaven. We all have a part to play and it's going to be ordained by God and you are going to do this thing. However, doesn't it get less formalized, Sarah, as the church comes along, it becomes less and less of a calling? It does. But something that still remained was that it did mirror, they saw, these women saw themselves as mirroring the work of their divine mother. This was a, it was a holy experience. And I have a quote from Susanna Morrill's article um, from, it's called Birth and Death Rituals. It's from the Journal of Mormon History. And she says that when women assisted at the birthbeds and deathbeds of their neighbors, they were mirroring in reverse the work of their divine mother. As the mother in heaven sent her children to mortality, Relief Society women stood ready to welcome them just as the mother in heaven stood ready to welcome back her matured spirit children sent out for mortality by the Relief Society caretakers. Apparently, in the lived religion of Mormonism, the gates into mortality were female, and so were attendants who stood immediately on either side of them. So this this adds this layer to it of this really this divine calling of the women who were attending these births, and it's something that we don't we don't talk a lot about, and I think we we shy away from it, especially this discussion about the divine mother. She is having a comeback right now in in Mormonism and in our discussions. But these women were seen as continuing this divine work. Fascinating. So they saw themselves as emulating God in their heavenly roles. Yeah. Which is a a very Mormon idea. And I think that really goes back to this idea that it is a calling that women do women's work and Heavenly Mother does women's work in a lot of ways, especially in early Mormonism. And so one of the things that I found particularly interesting in looking at this is Ogden Kraut in his 95 thesis rather than just look at solely theological issues or issues about doctrinal changes to the church, two of the things that he points out, well, three of the things that he points out are issues of birth control, women administering to the sick, and midwifery. And the women administering and midwifery kind of go together. But he has a few sections where he very particularly talks about how midwifery was a church calling, a specific church calling. It it wasn't you know, women go to Relief Society, they just happen to be midwives, but they're also called in their ward to be midwives. Patty Sessions is the best example of this. She delivers 
almost 4,000 babies in her life. And she's set apart to do this. But on July 15th, 1873 is the best example of this. And Brigham Young issued a request through the bishops of the wards and the presidents of the Relief Society throughout the church that every ward should have three women appointed to study hygiene, nursing, and midwifery. And so that became their church calling. In the Journal of Abraham Cannon, it talks about how four women were set apart on a specific day as their church calling. Prescindia was set apart um, by one of the apostles and blessed with the gift of healing for her to use in her midwife practice. Um, And that's in the life of Heber C. Kimball by Orson Whitney. So it was intimately tied with their relationship to the church. It wasn't like, hey, you're a woman in Relief Society, you're also going to happen to deliver babies. It was considered part of their divine obligation. And one of my favorites to highlight is Ellis Reynolds' ship. And I believe this was, she was a grave that we passed by in our cemetery tour. And I love, I visit her um, like probably once a month. I go to her grave because I really love her. And in the 1870s, she was one of these women that was sent back east to study at the medical schools there. She was in Pennsylvania, I believe. And she ended up coming back here and starting opening up the School of Obstetrics and Nursing in Salt Lake City. And she would teach two six-month-long courses each year. And she had about 500 midwives um, come through her program that were then able to go out to these more rural areas of Utah and Idaho and beyond. So she was very influential. And She also helped, she started the first uh, medical journal in Utah called the Salt Lake Sanitarian. And she was a big part of of this professionalization of birth practices and of midwifery. I don't think she knew that midwifery would be totally overshadowed by obstetrics um, as men were wanting to come into that field more. I, I don't think she saw that coming. But she and she she did a whole lot um, with the Deseret Hospital as well. But so but Ellis Reynolds Ship is one of my favorite. She's one of my favorite midwives at that time because she just and she just kept going. She kept you know making a journal, kept just teaching women. And a lot of these records show that she would either be pregnant herself or she'd be holding the children of the women she was teaching because she wanted to make sure that these women were able to have childcare and also attend her classes. Yeah. Mm, fascinating. And, and I want I want to note too that you know so often today people value obstetrics more than midwife midwifery. I see I've seen that a lot, especially where I grew up, you know, in Southern California, people thought it was strange to give birth at home or to use a midwife. But even at that time, there was an understanding there were certain medical practices that were fraudulent or strange or weird or inaccurate. And midwifery was never placed in that category. Midwifery and herbalism was always considered a valid form of medicine. As Throughout the 19th century, there was a lot of talk about quackery, and we still use that term to kind of brush off certain things. And a lot of times herbalists are brushed off as quack. And even up until the 1930s in the improvement era, it talks about that one day the golden age of, qu- of quack remedies and patent medicines will be over and we'll be able to control things more. But midwifery has never, in, more, in the Mormon context, midwifery has never been lumped in with quackery and with the dismissing of things as being unfounded or strange in some way. So that's kind of significant to note that there's never been a history where it's been in Mormonism, where it's been fringe. In the Word of Wisdom episode, we just did two episodes back. We talk about where the church starts to shift on this idea of using herbs as 
medicinal for medicinal use. And once we hit that threshold, the church starts to really back away from any sort of holistic or natural healing. I'm going to say that it is pretty quickly, though, in Mormon history that the church decides to crack down on women controlling their own bodies through the use of herbs in the form of birth control, because birth control was widely used. Herbs like pennyroyal and Queen Anne's lace have always been used for to, con- for, um, to induce miscarriages. And it was pretty early in the journal discourses that Brigham Young first really takes a stab at these practices. So I want to get to that, but can we talk about an area of reproduction that I actually find fascinating, and that is women's menstruation, just because, I mean, you guys feel free to weigh in on this all you want, but I've always often wondered, because in my own experience as an LDS girl, like, we just didn't talk about it. It was one thing that I was super, super embarrassed of, and, you know, I grew up in what we would consider the modern age, and I didn't know anything. I, I think I was... In, I was 30 when I learned to use a tampon for the first time. So, um, yes, I am saying that on the podcast, Christina. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm just shocked that you were 30. I know. So I'm mute myself right now. I was one of those, one of those girls. But so, you know, the history of this is very interesting because obviously women have been dealing with it for so long. But even now, it's like uncomfortable to for talk about. Hour. Yeah. And I think that everyone listening, you know, there are people out there that are going to turn this off or be uncomfortable hearing about something that is just like a natural part of human existence. That happens to half of the world's population. More than half of the world's population bleeds roughly every 30 days. Yes. (laughs) And what you're saying is like, that in itself, the fact the its absence is, I think, one of the most significant things. Because when I was working on stuff about on writing about the law of purity, several fundamentalists asked me about menstruation and where menstruation factors in, because there's a lot of talk about gestation and there's a lot of talk about lactation. And so several people came to me and asked about menstruation because that is something that uh, was referenced in Jewish law. And so it was assumed that it would be referenced in the restoration. And surprisingly, none of the early church leaders talk about menstruation. Well, I mean, that's no surprise, especially considering most of the leaders historically have always been men. So it's just not a pressing issue. Right. But I think the assumption would be if you're giving talks in very public settings, specifically mentioning gestation and lactation, those are, you know, considered fairly sensitive topics in terms of sexuality as well. And so menstruation does seem to be a glaring absence if we're already talking about sex in times of lactation. Uh, And so when I was reading through the documents, I did find that to be a glaring absence and telling people that that was missing did seem surprising to Mormon fundamentalists that are concerned with correct sexual practices. Yeah, that's a fair point. And and to that absence, you know, I was looking at the history of menstruation, for example, like in Egypt, we have 4,000 years of basically silence. We don't know how women dealt with this. And it isn't until, strangely enough, the the sort of intersection of religion where we have the Talmud, where they talk about nidda, where you can't be around women who, you know, are menstruating. They have rules for it in the Talmud. And then Islam has like 20 different rules for how to handle that. And we start to see this showing up. Um, We start creating rules and uh, attaching God to this because if birth, if the idea of humans being born, growing up, are related to God somehow, then reproduction is also 
tied back to God and to these practices. And so you have women who, I mean, I was reading something really interesting, like in ancient Greece, they used to wrap, you know, wool around sticks and use that. And then women have been using rags and forever. Sarah, how do we know anything about how early Mormon women would have dealt with menstruation? Is it was it ever talked about? Was it ever publicly acknowledged, privately acknowledged? I just I have information from a from midwives in Washington around the time um, of the Utah of Utah, um, and all I know is that they did use rags. And there's not a lot of information though, and I do wish that there was more, and that I mean that I could do a whole podcast about menstruation with you. I would love to dig deeper and do that, but there is no, I have no information on how Mormon women dealt with it. Cause if I'm thinking about how menstruation is dealt with now in Mormonism, I, and women are very close lipped about it now. I can't even imagine what it was like back you know, in the, the mid 1800s and 1900s. Well, we have to understand like these concepts that we're using now weren't even invented. Like Victorians didn't even understand the concepts of sexuality, not because they were ignorant. They just weren't around. I mean, sexologists didn't come to be until the 1880s when they started studying sexuality. But this idea of gender and gender identity and sexual preference and all of these things were not just not concepts that people talked about. So it's possible that, I mean, I don't see any scholars in the 19th century taking up this issue because these just weren't things that people studied. They didn't talk about it. Christina, what would you attribute the absence to? I actually don't know because in my imagining of discussions of sexuality, it seems strange to be willing to talk about gestation and lactation very explicitly, but not talk about menstruation. I will, I will say though, kind of going back to talking about how women talk about menstruation today in Mormonism. Um, I did, I spent some time on a, fun, in a with a fundamentalist community in Nevada and while I was out there, I forgot what I needed. I was been trying to think about it, but I needed something. And the woman I was staying with told me to look under the sink. And I noticed that there were pads there, but there weren't any tampons. And I asked her because we had a, a, a relationship, we still do, which is fairly frank. And we, you know, I was able to ask her questions that were somewhat personal. And I asked her about the use of tampons. And she said that it, you know, it is a personal choice. Their community does believe in agency, but it's heavily discouraged. So that's something that I found to be particularly interesting. And when we've talked, we've talked to people who come out of the FLDS and we've asked about that and they've said that they weren't allowed to use tampons either. Yeah. So I think there's also this idea of tampons being equated almost with virginity. Yeah. And that's still an issue. I mean, I was just, I'm not making this up. I was talking to a BYU student the other day who didn't use tampons for years and years and years because she was told that it would uh, affect her virtue. Like it would, you know... Mm -hmm ruin her hymen and it would ruin her marriage. And I just, it's, it seems strange now, but I remember being in that mindset. I was one of those people. And I don't think that's particularly Mormon either. I know people that come out of very conservative Baptist communities that had very similar ideas. So I think there was a, a, you know, 20th century conservative American religiosity encouraged those, that understanding of sexuality and women's bodies. And I would say the understanding would be a misunderstanding, right? Like they don't even understand how pleasure works. And and this is nothing new. I mean, we could get into a larger discourse of 
FGM and how women's pleasure and sexuality is expressed. But it seems, would could we all agree that for the most part, early Mormons would have been on par with other early Americans at the time, with the exception of they saw it, they saw reproduction as maybe a divine calling? Yes, definitely. They saw motherhood as as the woman's main religious role and her main role in society. So they weren't probably on board with everything about menstruation, but they did benefit from what it resulted in. Yeah, because there's this tension between this idea of the curse of Eve, right, too, and women's fall. And and I think that this sums up the Victorian era. Some people say it's a double standard, but I, I see it more of a tension of women, you know, in this we don't want them to become hysterical, right? The word hysteria is rooted in women and orgasms and masturbation. And then we also want women to be pure. And there's this messy realm of realness in the middle where women have to be married and have sex and have babies. Yeah. And I, I would just throw out my Catholic propaganda because I have to do that. Um, at this time, you know, the other main religious tradition in the U.S. that was that had an understanding of the divine feminine was Catholicism. That Catholicism has always had an understanding of Mary as the mother of God. Not always, but for a very long time, the doctrine that Mary is the mother of God has permeated Catholic doctrine. And so motherhood was held in high esteem in Catholicism. But what's interesting about Mormonism is that in Mormonism, it allows for a sexual component to Heavenly Mother, that Mormonism never stripped Heavenly Mother of sexuality, whereas in Catholicism, Mary remained a virgin her whole life. She died a virgin. And so Mormonism was unique that it allowed the gods to have a sexual relationship, and that included the divine feminine aspect, which Catholicism didn't allow for, you know, she's not Heavenly Mother, but she's the maternal figure that we have that is the Queen of Heaven. Well, and Christina, while I'm saying this, can you pull up that quote where Brigham Young and Orson Pratt and some of their early discourses were talking about God actually impregnates Mary to to form Jesus? I mean, the the doctrine is really, really strange, but you're right. It's in in some ways, this is the tension with polygamy, and this is why this is relevant to this this podcast, because polygamy deals with human sexuality. And so Mormons were dealing in that discourse all the time. And yet they had to fight this constant struggle between polygamy and prostitution. You know, outsiders were saying Mormons are prostituting their wives and Mormons are saying, here's why our women aren't prostitutes, because we live polygamy. It was a struggle between the two. Yeah, and this is actually contested by a lot of people in the contemporary LDS church, how the early church leaders understood the conception of Jesus, but it becomes really important when we talk about the law of purity later. And contemporary fundamentalists still acknowledge this, that when they talk about reproduction, they say, well, of course, Heavenly Father, Mary, the Virgin Mary, well, how I call her the Virgin Mary, but Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have been one of Heavenly Father's wives. And so it would have been um, understood that he would take a lower form in order to conceive Jesus. Brigham Young said in the first volume of the Journal of Discourses, quote, the father came down and begat him the same as we do now. Um, But the most kind of explicit reference that you were mentioning comes from Orson Pratt in The Seer, who says, quote, the fleshly body of Jesus required a mother as well as a father. Therefore, the father and mother of Jesus, according to the flesh, must have been associated together in the capacity of husband and wife, Hence, the Virgin Mary must have been, for the time being, the lawful wife of God the Father, 
inasmuch as God was the first husband to her. And he goes on and they later very particularly specify that it was not the Holy Ghost that conceived Jesus. Brigham Young in the Journal Discourses, Volume 1, also says, Now remember from this time forth and forever that Jesus Christ was not begotten by the Holy Ghost when the Virgin Mary conceived Jesus, and on and on. Um, and he talks about so about Heavenly Father taking a body. And some contemporary fundamentalists talk about Mary attaining a celestial body in order to conceive, and then she comes back down. But sexuality is what the gods do. You know, they're like people. Well, and I'm going to take it a step further. We have Huber C. Kimball in Journal Discourses, Volume 6, talking about Earth, the planet Earth. And this is what he says. Where did the Earth come from? From its parent Earths. And there's this whole 19th century discourse about the Earth as an embodied Earth, and it was created as a spiritual intelligence, just as human beings are. And so Heber Kimball understood it to be like, you know, um, when a father earth and a mother earth love each other very much and they give each other a special hug, then they give birth to our earth. And I think that that is how Mormons would have understood sexuality. Before we move on, I want to talk about the frontier period. But before we move on, one of the things that people become obsessed with, and this has become sort of the argument to either beat Joseph Smith up or exonerate him or to criminalize him or whatever are abortions. What do we know about early abortions in the early church period? I just want to, so this doesn't have anything to do with Mormonism specifically, but it has to do with the general time period is that, like I mentioned in the beginning, abortion wasn't considered a termination of a pregnancy at the time. Um, using things like pennyroyal was the predominant herb used for this at the time. And pennyroyal was not used necessarily to stop a pregnancy. It was used to induce menstruation. Those are very different things. So if you were a woman at the time and you didn't have a full understanding of reproduction, how ovaries work, how menstrual cycles work, you're not going to understand why all of a sudden you're not bleeding that month. That's going to, and that comes across as a sign of illness. Even today, if you don't menstruate, you are considered ill. That's a sign of illness. Um, for a lot of people who would normally menstruate. So I want to note that there are people who don't menstruate and are perfectly healthy. But if you're someone that has consistently menstruated and all of a sudden you don't, you either take it that something's happening with your body or there's been a change. And so women at that time would have taken pennyroyal or a similar herb to induce their menstruation, not thinking that it was that they stopped menstruating because they were pregnant. And, and so, interesting yeah. now is that it's still used today. If I have a friend usually it's just a friend that's saying, Hey, I think I'm miscarrying. I'm four weeks along, which I do taking Penny Royal really helps to shed that lining. So they don't have to go in and have a DNC performed. So we still use those yeah. same herbs today, especially in midwifery. I also want to point out, this is something that I think will be news to some people that abortions have been around forever. Like that's as long as women have been pregnant, they have had abortions and abor abortions are like using the word porn, right? It's a super triggering word. It's super loaded, but it, it means a broad spectrum of things. And there are a, like this sort of spectrum of what it means to have an abortion. And so early Mormon women had abortions. There's no doubt about that because women have abortions. I mean, I, I've talked about this very publicly. I had an ectopic pregnancy. I had tissue growing outside of my uterus. And... I didn't even know it was an abortion until the doctor's nurse accidentally called it that in front of me. 
And then I felt awful because I was like, wait, is that what I'm doing? Everybody stop. And the doctor had to get mad at me and was like, if you don't do this, you will die. So I think that there it's because it's such a loaded word. It's it's really gotten muddied in how we talk about it with early Mormonism as well. Well, interesting to note, I was just talking about this with a coworker today. So, I mean, they call it an abortion because in from the medical side, if any pregnancy ends, that is an aborted pregnancy. So yeah, the term now means, oh, it's this evil thing that someone did. But really, it's the procedure in which to end that pregnancy is called, it's a di- the dilation and curatage, which DNC is what they refer to it as in the medical world. And, but when I'm asking, when I'm getting a health history, I ask a woman how many, you know, I ask how many pregnancies were terminated. It doesn't matter to me if they were artificial termination or if they were natural termination, but yeah, we have such a, there's such a negative stigma now on a pregnancy ending. And we also don't want to talk about it if it ended naturally. So women, I feel like we're caught in this spiral of not being able to talk about the ending of a pregnancy. I mean, you felt bad having ectopic pregnancy, but that could have ended your life had you not received that procedure, which is also the same procedure they do to perform an abortion, a DNC, but it's also needed, you know, it, it's such a, that procedure has helped save so many women's lives. And it's so funny because it really is about perception. I have a friend who is part of a very, um, evangelical fundamentalist Christian group. And she had um, a similar situation where the the pregnancy was not viable, but the baby was still growing. The fetus was still growing. And her family tried to prevent her from having the procedure to abort the baby because they thought it was murder, even though you know, it, there was no chance of this baby surviving. And I think, I think those attitudes still persist because that term is so is so loaded. But I mean, if we look at the history of this, the reality is I have dealt with some of the most insulated, isolated groups in America. And those women are still having abortions secretly. Mm-hmm. But when you put such a high penalty on women getting pregnant, um, in some communities, whether it be out of wedlock or whether it be before marriage or or you're not supposed to have it by religious law or whatever, women are going to take matters into their own hands. Because let's let's also be clear, not all sex is consensual and not all pregnancies right. are wanted or asked for. And so women have to take matters into their own hands. So even, yes, even in all of our Mormon communities, there are women having abortions. And I say this to Mormons everywhere. You know someone that had an abortion. You just don't know that you know that. Right. No, I was just going to say that it wasn't even, it wasn't until... The earliest reference I have to a church leader talking about it was in 1867. So that was the first time that I that I have of, and it was Brigham Young. We're all shocked, um, specifically talking about abortion. And in the same category, he talks about birth control. So this is really the beginning of church leaders lumping birth control and abortion together. Well, read the quote. Yeah, but, but let's back up to John C. Bennett really quick because he's oh, the one okay. that gets. Um, Accused. He gets accused of it. Uh, I'm I'm actually going to link to Brian Hales's site because Mormon Polygamy Documents has some information about that. Uh, it said that John C. Bennett, who was a doctor in quotes, just like he was a general in quotes, um, helped abort some of Joseph Smith's progeny. Do you guys want to say anything on that before I read this? 
I just had an eye roll. That was all. <laughs> um, apparently, there are three historical documents that associate Bennett with abortion. So we have Hiram Smith testifying in 1842 that... <laughs> Bennett was seducing women by promising that he would give them medicine to produce abortion should they become pregnant. So Hiram Smith testifies of that in 1842. And then Mrs. Zariah Goddard affirmed on August 28th, 1842, quote, Mrs. Pratt stated to me that Dr. Bennett told her that he could cause abortions with perfect safety to the mother at any stage of pregnancy and that he had frequently destroyed and removed infants before their time to prevent exposure of the parties and that he had instruments for that purpose, end quote. And then um, the last reference is Sarah Pratt, who described the instrument um, that Bennett had, which was, quote, a pretty long instrument of kind I had never seen before. It seemed to be of steel and was crooked at one end, end quote. So I'll link to that. If you want to go down the John C. Bennett rab- abortion rabbit hole, which is an unpleasant rabbit hole, um, I will link to it on the site. So the only thing I will say about that is... I think it would have been far more likely for women and midwives to perform abortions than John C. Bennett at the time. That's kind of one of the reasons that I think it's a strange theory. But the other one is a promise of an abortion isn't an abortion ever. So on all of these occasions, he says, I could give you this. It will be great. But none of the women have said he they had one. And I'm very much in favor of trusting women, especially in the early church record, and especially when it comes to polygamy. If women have said that they were married to Joseph Smith, I take their word for it because we already have a problem in Mormon culture of not believing women. And so I think we should believe them. But none of these women said they had an abortion. Also, pregnancy are not evidence of a marriage, but that's a whole different topic. Right. And But can we just say how creepy it is to use that as your pickup line? <laughs> like, hey, <laughs> it's fine. I've got this instrument. In my wagon. In my wagon. (laughs) This is such a dark topic. I mean, not because abortion is dark, but like, I don't want a dude hitting on me with that as his opening line. So, same. But apparently, apparently, something so scandalous. I mean, I, I do believe where there's smoke, there's fire. He probably, I have. I have little doubt that he probably said something similar since it comes from three different accounts. But you're right. It's, there's no evidence to suggest. Not that there would be evidence. I don't think that. I think the history of abortion is pretty secretive. I think well, that's true, but I will note that there's a lot of evidence for early Catholic abortions, and a lot of people that were, are now considered saints performing abortion in Sarah's house. Actually, I saw a little an icon of Saint Bridget of Kildare, who is the patron saint of midwifery, and there's a lot of stories about her performing quote abortion miracles. So they're there in the U.S., especially at this time, and especially in a time when Brigham Young was already condemning the practice. I don't know if we would have had a count. I mean, I want to, yes, I want to believe the stories of women, but I can't help but think that women were ending their pregnancies, whether they were probably using herbs. The midwives were very skilled with herbs back then, and we are today. And I just think about, women that I have known for 20 years who have barely confessed to me that they have had an abortion or women who I have led to the proper resources in our community to receive an abortion, who I am the only person that knows that they have had an aborted pregnancy. So there are 
there are secrets. <laughs> there are things that our, our pioneer ancestors did. And I just hope that they were able to receive the care from, from the women, from their sisters, from their midwives in the area. But I cannot help but think that that was happening. I mean, I, a, a family history story is that my great grandma found out she was pregnant in around like 1920, mid 1920s with twins. And she tried to hurt or she tried to, to fall and trip to end her own pregnancy. And she was a strong Mormon woman doing this, but it was out of necessity. They were poor. They had barely enough food to feed her four other children or, or three other children. And, you know, and she was this very Mormon, very church abiding active woman. And she was trying to end the pregnancy of her twins. You know, and I know I could tell you stories about that. Now I, I knew someone my age who was date raped and she felt responsible for it, got pregnant. She tried to end her pregnancy the same way. I mean, it, it stands to reason to me that this is, since we know we have documented history that women have always been doing this, it's happening now and it always has happened. And, you know, I look at the FLDS. So uh, one common understanding of miscarriage in the FLDS is that it's a sin to miscarry your baby in the probably the last decade or so has been conflated with murder. So, you know, one woman told me the story about how Warren Jeffs called her into his office and accused her of murder, which meant she had a miscarriage. And she said, you know, I, it wasn't even true. I wasn't even pregnant. But that gives you some insight into how this rhetoric sort of gets out of control. And I've talked to FLDS women who aborted their babies and from their husbands because they had too many children and they were depressed or, you know, the thought of having one more baby or put them over the edge or the idea that their pregnancies were really hard and they couldn't bear to to do that again. So, yeah, I think it's taboo, but it's happening. Mm -hmm. All right, we're going to stop right here and make this part one and so you're gonna have to tune in to listen to part two which is gonna be out soon so check out part two and uh, when it's up we'll link it on the site The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening. <laughs>